Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello there and welcome to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. We've got some great guests lined up as we look at some stories making the news here in Ireland and also around the world. And there was lots of news in football this week. So we're going to be looking in particular at the money that's going into sports stadiums around Ireland and looking at the people who are suddenly interested in investing in the League of Ireland. And we've talked a lot on this programme about the issue of energy and how it affects our competitiveness when we're out in the world trying to get more business and jobs for Ireland. But another area that we haven't looked at is the issue of water supply. Cliff Taylor from the Irish Times is going to be joining us today to talk about that issue and tell us about the difficulties that we're having with supply when it comes to big business. And finally, with so much happening in American politics, we felt it was a good time to catch up with Trump's various court cases. Caroline Vakil from The Hill in Washington will be here later to tell us what's next in the Trump melodrama across the water. You can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. And before we start our next item, I just want to say thank you to everyone who got in contact with us about an item we did last Last week on the issue of imposter syndrome, uh, lots of stories came in and it's something that we'll certainly return to at a future date. Now, he may have spent last weekend launching a couple of sneakers, but Donald Trump might have had one eye on a couple of court cases. Well, the Georgia case that he was involved in was going to be about Trump and if he had tried to influence the election officials there, the focus quickly shifted to the private life of the chief prosecutor. Take a quick listen to this. Well, no, no, no. I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. Now, that was the voice of Fanny Willis. And to talk about what was going on in that court case, I'm delighted to be joined again now by Caroline Bakil from The Hill in Washington. Caroline, you're very welcome back to News Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Mandy. Caroline, you know, any of us who are interested in uh, what's going on in American politics, even though we have been conditioned to the madness of Donald Trump and everything that goes with him, we're quite stunned by what went on in that court hearing last Thursday. You might just give us a little bit of background to who Fannie Willis is and what that court case is actually about. Sure. So Fannie Willis is the Fulton County prosecutor. She is essentially looking into whether former President Trump and his allies sought to overturn the 2020 election results in the state. And she has become the subject um, unexpectedly of the case um, because, you know, there has been developments within the case around her relationship with one of the prosecutors that is investigating this case and um, whether they had a previous relationship and whether that sort of clouds any judgment or, you know, the ability to fairly prosecute this case. So, you know, she took to the witness stand um, unexpectedly to to sort of testify in, in you know, in that case. And so, um I think for for critics, they're trying to use this as a way to sort of discredit her and this case against Trump. Of course, Trump and his allies have argued that this um, case, as does others, are politically motivated. Um, But of course, this is a little bit of a snafu that prosecutors are having to wade into and sort of navigate and trying to make an argument that, um, 
you know, that this doesn't describe the, the, the you know, prosecution that's taking place. Mm. Now, she was a very formidable witness and she wasn't taking any prisoners. You know, she um, surprised a lot of people. What did you make of her testimony? Um, you know, it's interesting that she decided to speak publicly about it um, because that was sort of a last minute um, that that seemed to be a bit unexpected. Mm. Um of course, I think that, you know, she is on the defensive and is trying to make the case clear to the public that this is um, not discrediting her her prosecution and, and that this is, you know, a case that should be moving forward. Um, but, you know, for those who are tapped in, who are political junkies, this is offering a bit of a, of a wrinkle within the legal case, um, a little bit of a plot twist, if you will, because you know, this was at one point a straightforward case about whether or not Trump and his allies were seeking to overturn the election. And now it's becoming a little bit more personal, including with the prosecutor. So um, a couple of twists and turns there. And of course, to your point, as you mentioned, yes, yeah, she, she was very, you know, she was on the defensive, was trying to push back against, you know, defense attorneys that were questioning her. Um, and, and she definitely wasn't uh, a wallflower by any means. No, by no means. Um, Caroline, you're just give us your take on where the other cases are at at the moment. What what should we be looking out for in the near future? Sure. So all of these cases are, are sort of happening on, on different timelines right now, which in some ways kind of makes it a little bit difficult to, to understand, you know, what part in the election season we can we can start to see these all playing out initially. But I think to just give the lay of the land, you know, Trump is facing several different uh, legal challenges, um, to put it lightly. There, there was a settlement that was just reached in terms of in, in New York uh, with Attorney General Letitia James regarding um, he and his family being fined um, over $350 million in allegedly inflating assets for financial gain. Um, you know, he also has an ongoing trial um, in terms of with the Manhattan County District Attorney um, and an alleged hush money payment that he made before the 2016 um, election. We also know several uh, Justice Department uh, problems being kind of looked into in terms of, you know, the 2020 election, the aftermath of uh, January 6th, as well as his alleged mishandling of documents at Mar-a-Lago. And then, of course, this Georgia case right now, Mm. um, specific to the state, but also regarding whether or not him and his allies um, sought to overturn the 2020 election results. So lots of different moving pieces, of course, right now. Okay, so that's a great synopsis of everything. It's so hard to keep uh, an eye on everything. There's just this kind of cloud of confusion, which is what Donald Trump loves, isn't it, really? He just is using these court cases as a platform almost. And as you go through them there, those fines of 350 million, I read the other day in those five cases you mentioned, there's 91 legal charges in total. And it's all, you know, it it is just this fog of confusion around Trump. But I think he thrives on it. Do you? I think he does. I think that one of the reasons why he resonates so much with the base um, is because he has made this argument um, to his supporters and even Republicans who might be skeptical of him or on the fence or maybe they're looking to move past him. They feel like he's being, you know, that these challenges are, are politicized against him, that he's being unfairly targeted. And he's making the case that if they're going after me, they're going to go after you too. Mm. And I think that this is sort of an argument that you know, whether or not you agree with it, it's resonating with his base of voters. And they feel like, 
you know, because he's a Republican, because he is likely the Republican presidential nominee, he's being targeted fairly. Um, you know, mm. sort of look to, for example, this argument, I think that the Trump campaign is trying to highlight between how Trump has handled classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago compared to, you know, how President Biden handled, you know, documents that were found in Delaware and his office space. Um, and the fact that no charges were recommended against Biden, um, you know, Republicans arguing that there's this two-tier justice system. Um, and I think that when you start to see the split screen, for Republican voters, that really re- resonates with them and, and Trump's message. Absolutely. And even the funny Willis case, I mean, that feeds in to his narrative again that the system is completely stacked against him. Um, look, I don't know, from this remove, it, it has looked like a very difficult couple of weeks for uh, both uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But like the NATO um comments that he made has absolutely spooked Europe and kind of given us a a little glimpse behind the curtain of what may be to come from Donald Trump in terms of foreign policy. How has that played out in America? Sure. And that's a great question. I mean, we saw over some of the Sunday shows, for example, this past weekend, Senate Republicans who have largely been brushing off his Mm. remarks and I think trying to underscore, hey, NATO allies should be trying to be paying their fair share. And that's all that Donald Trump has been trying to emphasize. Um, you know, Republicans I've talked to, some of them have downplayed the idea that um, he would actually allow, if he was present again, um, you know, NATO allies to be invaded by Russia. But of course, you know, those that his comments are leaving the door open to those kind of questions. Mm. And to your point, sort of unsettling the international community about what would a second Trump presidency look like and what would that mean in terms of foreign policy. Um, And so I think, you know, in some ways we see Senate Republicans like J.D. Vance, like Tim Scott, some of whom are also floated to be VP hopefuls for him as trying to defend him. And they also recognize probably, you know, the um, writing on the wall that Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee. And so, they have to kind of understand and, and sort of navigate some of these comments. And, and Trump is is not shy of, of creating controversy among, you know, stances on things like foreign policy. So uh, one way that they're going to have to sort of navigate this mm. um, as we head into November right now. Absolutely. Look, the other person who had a bad week last week was, of course, Joe Biden. And, you know, that issue of his age coming back in a way that I don't think was... Um, prevalent the last time you and I spoke we were talking about you know undercurrents of discussions but the the ruling and the subsequent um, press conference that he held really was a game changer in my view in terms of the Democrats discussing this issue now has that discussion gained any momentum uh, behind the scenes there I know you're you're very well connected so how is that playing out over there? I think it's bringing the issue of age just to the undeniable forefront. I think it was it was clear that this was an issue from polling, um, but this was something that Joe Biden had to literally, you know, speak to during his press conference. Mm. And, you know, you could tell that he was very upset with the idea that he couldn't remember his son's um, passing and, and certain specific details. But I think that report, whether or not the White House agrees with it, is going to be another point for the Trump campaign, for Biden critics to turn to and, and say not only is there a two-tier justice system, but also Biden's age is certainly going to be a problem. And so I think for Democrats, their their strategy is going to be how do they kind of navigate this, especially because Biden is 81 
Trump is 77, but it, but it's more of a liability that's seen for Biden than it is for Trump right now. Mm-hmm. And is, are there any names kind of surfacing about who, if anyone, might replace him or a combination on the ticket? Anything like that happening or being discussed? Um, from my knowledge, I, I haven't heard those kind of discussions. Um, I think that right now it's it is mm. sort of what what we we are seeing, which is that President Biden is you know the Democratic nominee. I think the White House has tried to underscore that. Um, even you know before he he had formally announced his election, they had already said you know look he's running again. But it seemed like there was a bit of skepticism um, about whether or not that was really going to happen. And I think you know at this point it's a Biden Harris ticket. But to your point, it's not stopping speculation of. What could happen if mm. there is a last minute Democratic challenger that wants to, you know, what happens to Joe Biden? All of these sort of questions that might pop up because of all of these unexpected, um, unexpected plot twists that are happening. Mm. Um, I think for the Biden team, they're trying to tamp down on all of this and try to, you know, signal that they have a hold on this. But, you know, it, it's, it's going to be something that they're going to continually wrestle with as we head into the fall. Sure. Before I let you go, I just want to get your take um, back to Donald Trump for a second on mm-hmm. another issue that we both love, which is polling um, and whether or not there's any new statistics out there that show the potential effect of any of those court cases going against him. Um, is there anything new on that front? I think for right now, um, you know, look, Trump's uh, solidified, you know, the Republican base, even as he's running against Nikki Haley, who's his last, you know, formidable Republican challenger. Um, And we see, you know, former President Trump maintaining a lead over President Biden in some of the the key swing states. Um, The Hill and Emerson College polling had some polling out from North Carolina and uh, Georgia recently that showed uh, Trump leading Biden in, in several of those states. Um, you know, it is, of course, early. It's it's not close to November and people are going to slowly be, tur- you know, tuning into the election. I think one of the questions that remains to be seen is what happens if there is um, a conviction. I think that's sort of the question mark, an acquittal or a conviction. And we don't really know the answer to that, though, you know, that could really change in terms of how how polling happens and, and how and how those respondents are going to you know change their their framework around that mm. um but you know it's all speculation until we start seeing some of those decisions getting issued so Absolutely. Kind of back to square one. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, there's nothing to stop us speculating. We just love doing that. And Caroline, yeah. I, I know you're very busy, so thank you very much for taking the time to be with us to, again today. That was Caroline Vakil from The Hill in Washington. Thanks so much. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, we've talked about energy a lot on this programme, but today we're going to tackle another commodity that's in short supply. Cliff Taylor is on the case and he'll be here. Don't go anywhere. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, in the week where oral hearings on the long talked about Dublin Metro finally began, we thought we'd take a bit of time today to look at other types of infrastructure and um, On this programme, we have focused a lot on the deficits around energy. But another issue uh, in relation to the future economic development of Ireland that is really important is water supplies. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, who's been writing about this very issue of late. Cliff, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Glad to be here, Mandy. Now, Cliff, like when we we talk about attracting big investors to to Ireland, um, we often have discussions about a well-educated workforce, uh, a low tax rate, uh, 
accessing the European marketplace. But seldom does uh, the commodities issue enter into the discussion. And, and we have tried to, on this programme, look at the issue of energy. But today, I suppose I wanted to look at another area, and that's the issue of water. Because taking those basic things uh, for granted is no longer really uh, something that the IDA can do when they go out into the world, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's true. And I suppose the piece that I wrote recently came from discussions from, you know, people who are who are active in that arena in business or with contacts with business. And um, this is certainly an issue on the radar of companies that are here already and companies that are looking to come here. Now, we're not talking about all, all kinds of industry. I mean, the, the big service companies, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, etc. cetera, uh, this isn't a big issue for them, but it is a huge issue for big manufacturers, uh, the likes of the big pharma companies, uh, particularly the likes of Intel uh, down in the East. Uh, there are a few things that they want to take off on their uh, on their list, if you like, and certainly in terms of Ireland and in terms of other countries as well. Water, and cheap and available water, mm. and cheap and available power are now are now very high on the list. And, and there are ones I think they are ones where there are questions about mm. long term investment and capabilities. Yeah, on, on the issue of, of water specifically, what is the concern that big business like those have at the minute? It's 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 partly cost, uh, but it's it's it more than that. It's 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 availability and, and long term availability of clean water, uh, and and the the issue I suppose is that uh, because there's been such huge development of industry and housing on the eastern seaboard. Uh, that we now have a water system, uh, you know, on this side of the country, particularly in the greater Dublin area, uh, which is pretty much at its limit. Uh, you know, there are, there's very little kind of leeway there from day to day in terms of new water supply. Uh, therefore, any company looking to locate in Ireland, uh, and particularly looking to locate along the east coast, mm. one of the first issues has got to be sorted. And just in terms of those figures, Cliff, and, and, and kind of how surprising some of them are um, in your piece and, and, and just doing a bit of research on this, I learned that the water supply in Dublin, there's 85% dependency on one river. So if anything happened to the river Liffey on the east coast, I mean, there would be a serious, serious problem. And just looking at some of the forecasting, Ishka Aaron forecasting that by 2044, we need 34% more water in the eastern and midlands regions than we have today. So it's not an issue that's going to go away, no matter what investment comes in. But what's causing, um, I suppose, are you concerned about from what you've noticed that, that there's a lack of planning in this area? Like, what are the government doing to try and address this? We know what they're doing on the energy side. They're trying to advance sure. with renewable energy. But what's the solution here? Yeah, I mean, it's a long-term strategic thing. And I suppose long-term strategic things tend to be, you know, all too often put on the back burner and, you know, left for left for the next day or the day after because uh, part of the solutions can upset people and the rewards are are still uh, a long way down the road. So there is investment clearly needed in the Dublin, uh, the Dublin water infrastructure, uh, and in particular uh, leaky pipes, which have been a, a perennial issue for, for water in Dublin and still... More than a third of of the water uh, is lost every day uh, just from just from leaks from the pipes. Mm. 
so obviously that that's a massive wastage and that is something that Aaron are uh, they say trying to target through 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 an investment program but but clearly uh, there are there are thousands of kilometers of pipes and you know it's a, it's a huge job uh, so the case they have made uh, and they are uh, will make to the government is that we, we know we need another solution for the long term and their proposal is to uh, construct a, a pipe that will go across the country from from the Shannon from the Partine Basin taking water from the, the Shannon uh, and piping it across the country to serve uh, both the Midlands uh, the, the area that it will be piped through and, and the greater Dublin area to kind of remove this uh, factor at the moment where we're reliant on one river and a few reservoirs and that if something happens w- w- with one of those reservoirs or with the supply in the in, you know in, in that one river we're clearly in we're clearly in big trouble mm. and where is that particular project what state is that at are they advanced on it or is it um just at the pu- public consultations phase still which as I understand, as I understand it, you know huge work has gone into it uh, and I think there's uh, there, there will be uh, an ask if you like for for a sign off from cabinet for for the next stage uh, to move to the next stage uh, if you like which would allow a full uh, full proposal to go into on broad panola and that's likely to happen before too long hmm. uh, but of course there are local elections in the wind as yeah. well and there are huge sensitivities in the west of Ireland uh, in, in the area that this would happen, to, you know, to taking uh, what, what people in that area, you know, say is their water mm. uh, for the benefit of, these, of, of you know, other parts of the country. Uh, so it is a politically sensitive one. It is one, I think, that would need to be, you know, the wider benefits of it would need to be sold uh, very significantly yeah. uh, right across the country. Uh, and and you you could see it uh, in terms of uh, moving to the next stage being you know perhaps kicked out till after the local elections or whatever. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I don't think any politician would want to revisit the water charges thing. And basically, this is where this all kind of stems back to because that issue of repairing the leaks and trying to fund the infrastructure for the future was all wrapped up in that campaign. Was all wrapped up in that initiative. And I think there's a still a legacy of uh, of uh, in the political landscape to, to not kind of go near that. But nonetheless, we are playing catch up on the issue of energy and water uh, under investment. Is it under investment? Sorry, the country's awash with money, forgive the pun, but the country is awash with money. Is it about under investment now or is it about short term disjointed political thinking? As you say, elections coming up hardly likely to take any significant initiative now. Um, yeah, so it's is it about the money or is it about the, the political will? More than that, I think. Mm. I mean, we don't know the costings that are behind this project. Uh, they haven't been revealed. I'm sure they'll be, they'll be really substantial. Uh, you know, so that is a factor in the long term. But I think that the, that the shorter term issue is, you know, the political will to, to grasp this nettle, if you like. Mm. And and to you know to let this project go to the next stage and uh, you know I think I, you know I, I'm not an engineer uh, you know I'm not qualified to tell you whether this is the best way to uh, to solve Ireland's water problem uh, but there are you know people who would assess the project in Board Panola and the EPA etc who are qualified to do that and I think what we need to do is to is to at least make a decision you know are, are we going to do this and if we're not going to do this. How do we propose to tackle this problem? You know, what are the other solutions that might come on the table? You know, I, I'm not 
uh, I, I don't think there's, there's a, much planning got into any any other possible solutions. Uh, th- this one does have some attractions, uh, certainly in, in the long term, in terms of getting uh, a clean supply of water across the country through the kind of northern half of the country and also releasing the pressure on many other parts of the country at the moment, uh, you know, where water is being pumped around to try and meet short-term, short, you know, short-term shortages and uh, infrastructure is being relied on, which really isn't going to uh, mm. isn't, isn't going to last in the long term. Finally, on this cliff, if I can, um, look, it's making the job of the IDA and other agencies who are out in the world uh, more difficult for us. Um, you know, you rightly have referenced the local elections and a possible general election later this year. Um, somebody in politics said to me earlier this week, April is basically the last chance for any big ticket items to come through. After that, nothing is going to get done. And that's the reality of this. But when you're talking to people in the idea about things like the carrying capacity and, and you look to the likes of Mark Foley from, from Airgrid about the energy thing, um, surely there is a there's a kind of an onus or, or more pressure coming on a wider cabinet than just the Minister for Energy or just the, the Minister who's responsible for water. This is a finance issue now. This is for Michael McGrath. This is for Simon Coveney. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it goes far as to say it's kind of a, it's, it's a mission crit- critical issue now along with housing. Um, these are the things that, that investors are going to be looking at. Uh, I suspect that We've already lost some projects on, on, on the foot of this, including projects that might have located in kind of regional locations of Ireland, uh, because investors are looking not only at, at, at these specific issues, but also at the planning issue and saying, well, you know, can we be guaranteed to get through the Irish planning system in whatever, three years or whatever? And, and the reality is that as of now, the, nobody can give them that guarantee. So when you add all those things together, uh, I think the story we're selling to foreign investors isn't maybe quite as compelling as it was in the past, you know, where we had the tickets of a skilled workforce, mm. low tax rates, come here, you, you know, you'll make money and, and it did very well for us. Uh, you know, we still have we still have those two tickets to sell, if you like. Mm. Uh, but we have the, the problems on the other side as well and, and, and big countries in Europe now competing much more actively for investment, the likes of Germany and and France and so on, who, who are now competing with us for, 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 for big projects. Finally, Cliff, before I let you go today, just wanted to, to mark the sad passing of your colleague, Michael O'Regan. He really was um, a very important figure in Irish journalism and in political journalism in particular over the last number of decades. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's been it's been uh, very quiet in in here in the office this week. I think people are thinking of and speaking of Michael a lot. Uh, he was, as you say, a huge figure in political journalism. And, you know, personally, having watched him in action, a man with the most extraordinarily detailed knowledge of uh, of Irish politics and uh, how constituencies would break down, where votes would go, uh, how they might transfer, all that uh, minutiae, if you like, that makes up uh, Irish politics and is so important in who gets elected and who doesn't. You know, if you wanted to know about any of that stuff, how things might pan out. Michael, Michael was the man. Michael was the man you went to. Yes, he always, always has an opinion, and he always have an answer. He absolutely would, and he will be well remembered and sadly missed. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Mandy. 
You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, Money Talks in Football. Lots of investment stories this week. So we're going to be looking at the League of Ireland and why it's so popular with wealthy business people all of a sudden. That's coming up right after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, football was in the news a lot this week. You can take your pick, whether it was government's investment in Casement Park or the FAI at the Oireachtas Committee or the long-awaited Director of Football Report from Mark uh, Canham of the FAI who unveiled their long-awaited Football Pathways plan. Um, But today what we wanted to look at was the state of Irish football, but in particular the League of Ireland. It's been a very hot topic for many, many many years. But now there's some fresh investment coming from billionaires, both foreign and domestic. So we wanted to see if the tide is actually beginning to turn for what should be the jewel in the crown of Irish football fans. And to do that now, I'm joined by Aidan Fitzmaurice, who is a soccer correspondent for the Irish Independent. Aidan, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Now, as I say there, the the League of Ireland is beginning to have what they say in social media circles, a bit of a moment uh, right now. Why is it? There's a lot of reasons. I mean, attendances are hugely up on recent years, even small thing. The President's Cup is the game between the League Champions and the FAI Cup winners. It was introduced by Michael D. Higgins 10 years ago. Um, England always had the charity shield. We never had it. So the first one in 2014, I think the crowd was was 1,300. The one that was played two weeks ago in Tallah Stadium had over 8,000. So that kind of sticks to, there has been growth, particularly in Dublin. Um, Bohemians and St. Patrick's Athletic are full every week. They could sell an extra one or 2,000 tickets every week. They've been waiting list for members. But there is a huge interest. A lot of people put it down to post-COVID, kind of people getting fed up with the, with the Premier League, just uh, a real COVID bounce and a lot of community work, a lot of new Irish who want to go, a lot more female involvement. There's a lot of reasons why the crowds are, are up. The crowds are definitely up and that has led to interest from abroad and particularly people wanting to invest here to try to get a, a slice of that pie. Mm. And it's certainly having an effect in terms of attendance. As One of the other things yourself and, and others like Shane Coleman of this parish have been writing about is how successful they've been in terms of marketing on on social media. Yeah, and a lot of that is done by by the clubs themselves and and the work done by, I I don't like using the word amateur because Mm. it implies lack of quality, but uh, volunteer staff. A lot of the people who work for clubs who do match programmes, who do videos, who do posters, they do it voluntarily and it's the work is of, of the standard of the Premier League or anything abroad. It really is good. The videos that Simpats have been very good, Shamrock Rovers, Bohemians, the work they do, Bohemians lost new, launched a new shirt last week, a tie-in with uh, Tin Lizzy, which obviously going to appeal to Tin Lizzy fans. Even the model modelling the shirt was uh, an African Irish girl; it wasn't a, a male model. Little things like that mm. really are appealing. They're appealing to females, and I see that the games you go to traditionally, the League of Ireland, I would have been watching twenty, thirty years ago. It was basically blokes. It was lads and their dads or granddads. Now it's it's teenage girls are going all left like you've three generations of families going and the, the new Irish are going if you go to any match you will see hear different voices different accents different languages it is very appealing and I think I said a part of that is people are just a little bit bored with the Premier League that people are wondering well what does the Premier League give you okay you can sit at home and watch Chelsea and Liverpool you can watch the Manchester Derby and local pub or at home it, it doesn't feel real it doesn't feel feel brilliant and if you can go to a ground and watch uh, you know this weekend, for example, you know, Shelburne and Shamrock Rovers going to head some Pats and Bohemians to Dublin rivalries that mean an awful lot to a lot of people. It just feels real and people are buying on board with that. I think as well, there's a little bit of cachet to it as well. Mm. 
kind of outside influence people like, you know, Seamat, who's a huge emerging singer. I think she's going to be the huge star of 2024. She's been pictured wearing a Bohemian jersey. Lancome, the Fontaines were associated with, with Bohemians. There is a little bit of uh, just mustard or a band from Dundalk who've been on stage wearing Dundalk FC jerseys. A little bit of thing that wasn't there 10 years ago. Nobody in music or in the arts was interested in, in the League of Ireland. And something simple as that, seeing a star like uh, the Fontaines DC uh, having a Bohemians jersey is, just gives it, it brings it up a little level. Mm, absolutely. It's a, a bit of a moment, as we said. I use the word renaissance because there's many of us who remember a time uh, when the League of Ireland was actually quite successful and it wasn't just in terms of attendances here, but also um, how we exported a lot of its players to the UK and saw them on our screens every week. So you might just uh, give us a little bit of a historical background about the decline of the League of Ireland and why um, it, people started drifting away and, and how things like Sky Sports affected attendances. Yeah, particularly in the, the, I mean, the league started in the in the 20s with, with independence. Before that, the, the club, there was, would have been an All-Ireland League, so the likes of Bohemians, Shelburne would have played in, in an All-Ireland League and competed for things. But I suppose in the in the particularly 50s and 60s, it would have been very strong. You would have had huge crowds at even lesser competitions like the Leinster Senior Cup. You know, it could have got crowds of 30,000, 40,000, but a bit like the Railway Cup in GA, it mm. lost its luster over years. And really, I suppose, early, mid-70s, um, uh, you know, people put it down to the, the growth of TV. People weren't weren't going out as much anymore, um, and instability in the league because there was a huge amount of instability. It was boom and bust, particularly in Cork, where you know Cork Hibs, Cork Celtic, Cork United teams came and went. A lot of that was self inflicted by the clubs because they had to waste a lot of money. You had people like George Best, Bobby Charlton, all these great greats of, of of world football came to play in in League of Ireland in the seventies, particularly in the in the seventies, and they couldn't couldn't afford them. Gordon Banks, World Cup winner with England, played for St Pat's. But it was all very short term. It was all boom and bust. And you got to a stage then in the 80s where, you know, the huge decline, facilities declined. Stadium and Park went into decline. Uh, Milltown, um, Glenmalier Park, Shamrock Rovers home was lost. Clare Lodge was lost. There was no real investment at a time when all the focus was on the national team. So Jack Charlton was bringing the team to World Cups and to European Championships at the same time as the senior team were, were on, on the up. Mm. The league was on a decline. It was... You know, it, it just wasn't going anywhere. And I suppose it's been treading water for a long time with that boom and bust clubs coming and going, you know, Kildare County, Kilkenny City, Dublin City, all these clubs came and went. And it's really only the last couple of years that you've had to have had that stability. And I suppose the point is, Manny, to try and make sure that this is a flash, a flash in the pan, that this is sustained. Mm. That we have at the moment where Bohemians and St. Pat's have a full house of 4,000 every week. They both need new grounds. Their grounds aren't suitable for, for the cater for demand. But you have to sustain this to make sure that you don't get back to four years' time where people have bored, people have, have got, got, got bored, lost interest, clubs have gone bust again, and you're back to a thousand people. I think it is more structure, and particularly Shamrock Rovers, who are probably an example who Shamrock Rovers were homeless for the guts of 20 years. Their home in Milltown was sold from under their noses in 1988. They were homeless, wandering around Dublin looking for a ground. They didn't get home in Tallah Stadium until 2009. And what they've transformed that from, which was when Tallis Stadium opened, it was a pitch with a wall around it and mm. one stand. It's now got four sides. It can take 10,000. The Irish women's team have made it their home. It's a proper football stadium that can host proper proper international events. But we need more than one talent stadium. We need them all over all over the country, all over Dublin and all over the country. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you, you use the words boom and bust there because it is, success is cyclical. But one thing that's always necessary, I find, to maintain any level of success is money. And we're suddenly attracting some uh, commercial interest of foreign investors and indeed some, you know, large pocketed Irish ones. Maybe talk us through um, why they're getting involved and what's attractive to them about League of Ireland clubs 
at this particular moment in time? Yeah, well, I'll break it down first of all. There's, there's kind of four models of ownership, really, without going into too much detail. But you have the private owner. So someone like Gary Keller, a very successful businessman, essentially owns St. Patrick's Athletic. Philip O'Doherty, again, very, very successful in the business field, essentially owns Derry City. The Comer brothers own Galway United, more or less. You have a second group then where foreign money has come in. So Fleetwood Town and English Club have essentially bought Waterford FC. Uh, the American company who back Walsall in England have now taken control of Drada United. There's American money gone into at Lone Town and into a treaty in, in Limerick. That's the second group. The third group then is kind of a high group, Shomrock Rovers, where it's fan-owned but also private ownership. Dermot Desmond has an interest. And the fourth group then is fan-owned, so the likes of Bohemians, uh, Finn Harps, Cove Ramblers, Sligo Rovers, who are fan-owned. They don't have a sugar daddy. They don't have a Dermot Desmond backing them. So they're the four groups. And I suppose that the big first one was kind of about 20 years ago where a group called Arcadia bought into Cork City at a time when Cork were riding the way. They were getting huge crowds. They were successful. They were selling players to England. They sold Kevin Doyle and Shane Long and people like that. Uh, that was a disaster. You know, it ended badly. It's, the club ended, ended going back come to fan ownership. Um, and you know, I suppose warning sign will be Dundalk, that the success mm. that Dundalk had under Stephen Kenny where that attracted interest, Peak Six, uh, a Chicago-based investment firm saw what they were doing. They had interest in a number of clubs in Europe and England. They had interest in Bournemouth. They bought the club, tried to transform it, bring it to another level. It was a disaster. Uh, it was a huge gamble that failed and that was very damaging to Dundalk because the severed link between the club and the, the town, the people that they're still trying to build back. So investment doesn't always bring success. It can often end in tears. There are two examples, Cork under their Arcadia, who were London-based, and Dundalk under Peak Six. Uh, it's the same in Northern Ireland as well, Mandy. A lot of money has come in. Uh, new owners of Coleraine FC and Larne were bought a couple of years ago. So across Europe and and and, and particularly on the American continent, they're looking to Ireland. They see they can make money. It's a route into the EU. Um, European revenue is very, very attractive. The problem is only four teams can qualify for Europe every year. Mm. And if you have 10 teams trying to compete for that and expecting that a slice of that cash, somebody's going to be disappointed. Yeah, can you just talk to me a little bit more about the the fan-owned clubs? Who still remains in that category? Yeah, well, Bohemians, Sligo Rovers, Finn Harps, Cove Ramblers, uh, they're all essentially uh, fan-owned. Some others are a little bit of a hybrid. ECD are hard to explain because they're universities, so they're kind of out of the loop. But those four, and Bohemians are an example. I mean, fan-owned are 134 years in existence. Uh, they've had ups and downs. They're having a bit of a down at the moment. Fans aren't happy with how the team are doing. Mm. Uh, but two things, they've never been relegated and they've never gone bust. They came very close a few years. They took a big punt on a on a property play uh, in 2006. They hoped to get a new stadium. Deal went sour. They had to borrow to, to fund their existence while they fought the court case. Uh, they ended up with debts of £8 million and had to sell Dalyman Park to Dublin City Council to fund that. So they went close to the win. They nearly went out of business. But they are still, and Bohemians are adamant that nothing could replace that final ownership model that no trophy would be worth selling that to an American investor but we mm. have had, had offers from, from the UK and from America to somebody to buy the club and the members don't want it and the members feeling is we would rather be mid-table or bottom half or even in the second division rather than be owned by somebody else to, to have an American owner who will chase this dream, who will try and get us into talk about the Champions League, talk about all these things and if it fails then those Americans walk away and we're left with nothing. Mm. So there's a strong belief in Bohemians that no matter what the offer, if there was an offer on the table from an American billionaire to buy the club who wanted to turn them into a major European uh, youth club, they would refuse because it wouldn't be their club anymore. And that fan ownership, even though it's restrictive and it's very hard to compete with the riches that, you know, the Comer brothers who own Galway United have uh, very, very deep pockets. Philip O'Doherty in Derry City has very, very deep pockets. 
So if you're competing for players, for managers, for facilities, you'll be trumped financially by those. Mm. But the feeling of Bohemians certainly, and I think the same at Sligo Rovers in Fernarps as well is, well, we prefer that to to selling our soul, taking a punt and maybe winning a trophy. But we lose our lose what membership defines us. No, look, it's a, it's a very nice notion, but it's, you know, it's is it sustainable really when you're competing with people who are getting the investment? Again, going back to um, Shane Coleman writing about it this week from our own parish here, he talked about the state of some of the League of Ireland grounds. They need a lot of investment, so they're getting the crowds back. They They have to build better facilities. So, you know, it's challenging. It is challenging and part of the problem was there's always been money in the League of Ireland mm. spent in the wrong ways. Mm. Bohemians and Shelburne are a prime example of that in the Celtic Tiger years. They were spending two, three million a year on player wages. They were competing with each other. They were winning things but they spent nothing on their facilities. Mm. The stadiums in Talca Park and Daily Mount declined to the state they're in now where neither are really fit for purpose. Daily Mount is in a different character. Uh, the City Council have had planning permission. They hope to be in there by 2027, 20, 2028 in a 50 million stadium. It's going to need 40, 50 million estate funds to complete that. But the, the facilities are. But I think I look across the water and I read a stat recently. Uh, Reading FC, again, are a big club who would have been in the Premier League a few years ago. They know they're in desperate trouble. They've mm. had numerous changes of ownership and the local MP there who's very active on the issue I saw an interview with them recently where he said two-thirds of football league clubs in England, that's the clubs outside of the Premier League, are in danger of going out of existence. You have these clubs, I saw, you know, Hull City bought Shelburne last year, very short-term deal, sold it back. Hull City are losing something like 100000 a week. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Football in England does, does not make sense. No, um, no. And all these clubs are, so we, we compare ourselves to England sometime, but when you look at the the, the, the losses that they make, I think I saw QPR, again, a big club in England. A lot of older readers will remember it being in the, the old First Division, a big club in London. Uh, I think they're 200 million in debt. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't make sense in England. And I suppose the attitude of Bohemians and Sligo Rovers would be, why would we chase that? Why would we put ourselves in debt? You know, if we want our football club, trophies and success and everything else, that's handy. But the essential thing is to retain ownership of our, of our club. Mm. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm speaking to Aidan Fitzmaurice, who's the soccer correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent. Aidan, just speaking of that long-term planning that's not focused on pure money, um, we cannot continue doing what we're doing. There were the words from the FAI's um, Mark Canham this week talking about this long-awaited foot, football pathways plan. Have you had a chance to look at that and, and what was your assessment of it? Yeah, there's a lot in it that's very good. And Mark Hannum did, there was a consultative process that went around the, the country to talk to people. Part of the problem with Irish football, historically, Mandy, is just it's been so disjointed, it's so factional. I mean, if you think party politics is, is factional and divisive or Northern Ireland, just try and dip your toes into the politics of, of, of uh, Irish football politics because you have constituencies, you have a junior football, as it's called, so adult, non-professional or adult amateur football schoolboy football uh, obviously girls are in that now but traditionally would have been schoolboys in the League of Ireland and the, the, the factionalism the, the rivalry between them the competition they would have had for players for funds for everything else that's always what's held back football that people didn't act in the best interest of Irish football And do you think that own. this plan supersedes that? I, I actually I had the pleasure of working in the FAI for five years so I know exactly what the politics of football yeah. is but do you think that uh, we're just sadly time is upon us now do you think that this is a, you know a, a recognisably good effort at doing that do you think they'll take it seriously this time? I think it is we're probably still five, ten years away because you have to you're historically going against that but it's again it's about facilities and that's not down to the clubs it's down to the state to provide we're way behind for facilities. 
and a lot of those down to, to bollocks having, you know, do do towns, do your typical large provincial town, does it need three stadiums? Should it not have one municipal stadium that is used by all sports? Yeah, I, I, having having have a half decent GA stadium, a half decent horse racing venue, and a half decent. Uh, Soccer, uh, soccer venue, or whatever. That, yeah. that, it should be more joined up thinking. That's what Mark Hannum is trying to do. Good luck trying to get it through. Well, there's a lot of items on today's program that are about that very thing, joined up thinking. But for now, we're going to have to leave this particular topic there. But for now, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. That was Aidan Fitzmaurice, who's soccer correspondent for the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent at Media House. That's all we have time for today. But just to remind you that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks as always to today's guests for giving us a very valuable time and their insights. We really do appreciate it. Thanks also to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy. Simon Keane was on research with Stephen Daunt and Hugo Silva-Scott was on sound. Any comments on today's items, you can always email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is up next with all of your Sunday newspaper and lots, lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.